Obviously, this is written by Peter. Before we get into our text, I just want to give a brief introduction. So, as you can imagine, this is the second and last epistle of Peter. He knows that somehow in the near future, his death will um, is coming. As you see that in um, verse 13 of chapter 1, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, my body, just as the Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you have a reminder of these things after my decease. So somehow, some, some way, he knew that his death was approaching. So there's this tone of urgency and eagerness in this epistle. And that really is the main reason why he is writing to the church. He wants to, as we read in 13, stir you up. I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That is the goal of Peter in this epistle. Stirring up the faith, stirring up the soul of the Christian. And the cause of this stirring is twofold. He sees the danger and the threat of false teaching and teachers that are creeping in, or they might creep in, into the church. That's all of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. And the second reason is a less urgent one, but just as important, is the day of the Lord approaching. And this is all of chapter 3. He sees the day, the destruction of the world approaching, and he wants Christians to be stirred up to live in a way in, in light of that reality. So you can imagine Peter in his prison cell in Rome. Somehow, again, he knows his time is approaching. Somehow, he, he, perhaps he, he heard the soldiers or the guards talking about the date. Or perhaps he was even sentenced a date. Or maybe he just feels it in his bones. He's about to meet his Savior. Perhaps he he only has enough paper or enough ink or papyri or whatever they used back then, right? Perhaps he, he only has enough time. Verse 14, remember? Knowing that surely I must put off my tent. This is a short period of time I have. And, I, and he doesn't have time to say things like, you know, keep Johnny out of the cookie jar or something like that, right? Or, or maybe it's something more serious like Paul, like bring, my, bring the parchments or bring the, the writings and a coat. He doesn't have time. It's, it's very, this epistle is very clear, very concise. And these chapters, these three chapters are really transitions of his talking points. They're very clear, very outlined, very easily. And so, there's Peter. I don't want to read too much into the background, but just imagine the drama. 
right? Imagine Peter, just what, what the, the, the lingering question in his mind, what do I say to this church? What, how can I encourage them? How can I stir them up? What are the motivations behind this epistle and this, these two things? This ecclesiastical threat of false teaching and teachers and this eschatological reality of the destruction of the world. The day of the Lord is approaching. So considering these two things, Peter wants to, again, stir the pot of the Christian soul and faith. And that's really what our text is today, verses 1 through 11. This is the stirring, the stirring of the Christian faith, the Christian soul, the Christian life. These are all synonyms. So my exhortation is, brothers and sisters, let us be stirred. Don't fight it. Let us be stirred. And so let's read our text. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, would you quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, Lord. Rid us of any distraction. And Father, would you open our minds, our eyes and our heart to behold the glory of Christ. Behold the glory of the Christian faith and salvation, that we might be encouraged to live unto your glory just a little bit more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So remember, the main goal of Peter is to stir them up. How is this stirring accomplished? Well, if you remember, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 1, by way of reminder. Peter will remind them of certain truths 
and those truths hopefully will stir them up to live in accordance of these realities of false teaching coming into the church and the day of the Lord, the destruction of the world, the end of the world coming near. This is the this is my thesis. Peter intends to stir up the faith of the believer by way of reminder. By reminding them of, this is my four points, the truth of their faith, the, dilig- the diligence of their faith, the fruitfulness of their faith, and the outcome of their faith. So truth, diligence, fruitfulness, outcome of Christian faith. This is where we're headed. Okay? And in essence, these four points make up what is the wholesome Christian faith, right? Or we could call this, uh, this message also, also the holistic faith, the whole complete faith of the Christian life. And so, let us dig into our text. The truth, point number one, the truth of their faith. And this will be my longest point. It's just so rich. So Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, that is enough for us to pause, brother, brothers and sisters. Just look at his name, Simon Peter. It's interesting to note that in his first epistle, in 1 Peter, he only says Peter. He owns this Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here in his second, he says Simon Peter, a bondservant of, the, of an apostle of Jesus Christ. You can already tell that Peter is stirred up himself. Where where do we get this idea that, you know, the the writers of the New Testament weren't moved by what they were writing? He's meditating. Think about what death does to a man. Meditating upon his whole life, his whole ministry. The moment he met Christ, the moment that that he realized that Christ was the, the, the Messiah. The words of Christ to him. And who was the person that would call him Simon? Anybody? It's Jesus. Remember Matthew 16? He confesses that Christ is the Messiah. What does Jesus say? Simon Barjona, blessed are you. For God, for, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God in heaven, our Father in heaven, revealed it. And then a few verses later, Jesus calls him Satan, right? <laughs> right? <clears throat> or remember John 21, right? The restoration of Peter. Peter had denied, was intimidated by a little slave girl. You're a disciple of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus, right? And he's like, no, no, I'm not. He denies Jesus three times. Oh, and that pastoral tenderness of Jesus in John 21, restoring the apostle Simon. Son of Jonah, do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? The tenderness of Christ towards Peter. We, we really see his testimony just in this name. And, and, and in reality, we, we see a different Peter from the Gospels compared to the epistles. Amen? Peter's like, like the, the class clown in high school, right? He's just like, this guy is just never going to change. He will always remain the same, right? But 
you find out 10 years later that that same guy is like, you know, a man of God, preaching the word, right? Just, right, being used of God. This is, that's kind of what we see in Peter's life. Like, how many facepalm moments did Peter have? Peter of the Gospels is, is, is a different Peter from his epistles. We see this progression, even the book of Acts, this progression, the maturing of Peter. We see Simon as Peter and the apostles, Peter and the gospels as the, the fishermen, right? And then in the epistles, we, we see him as the fisher of men. And I can only picture Peter being stirred up himself. Remember, he has a short time. He can only think about his, his own life, his own testimony, his own journey in this Christian life. And so, what about us, brother? I love what Aaron was saying, you know, consider where Christ took you out of, where you were found when you first came to, to the feet of Christ. Uh, we were, we were um, reorganizing in our house this week, and uh, my wife found my, my prayer journal when I first became a believer. And definitely there were some cringy prayers I wrote down, right? <laughs> But just the genuineness, right? Have you ever heard somebody that just came to Christ pray? It's just like, it's not eloquent, it's not like, it's, but it's just, it's genuine. And just seeing God answer my prayers as I wrote them down. My Bible studies, you know, my, my notes going verse by verse, you know, just God growing me as a little exegete, you know, expositor from even back then. Where, where has the Lord taken you out of, Lord? Our God is, is good. He also adds the word bondservant, which is also interesting to know. But let's keep going. Simon Peter, a bondservant of, and a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained precious faith with us by the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that this, this epistle is written to the same people that received the, the first epistle, as it says in chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. It's the same people. I wrote the first one, now I'm writing the second one to you. But it's almost like he doesn't want to limit it. He doesn't want to limit this epistle, this truth, to just a, a group of people in a certain location. But he says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. In other words, all believers, all those who obtained that precious faith. And very quickly, we see this, this humility in Peter, this, this reality of there's no levels of salvific faith in the Christian, in the Christian, in the body of Christ. You have the same faith, if you're in Christ, as Peter. You have the same faith as the Apostle Paul. One of my favorite verses is in James where, he, where it says, Elijah was just a man. Right? Yeah, Elijah, the one who called fire down from heaven, won against 400 prophets. Yeah, he was just a man. He was just a mere man. He had that same precious faith. 
this idea of obtaining, in my version, uh, I think the NAS has received and the ESV uh, received as well. But uh, obtain, this, it's not a good translation because it has this connotation of, of reaching, right? Even in Spanish, it's alcanzar, it's, it's reach. We reach this faith. We reach this salvation. But we all know, brothers, that's not the idea here. We've been granted this precious faith. We've been given this precious faith. And the, the literal Greek is obtained by lot. You understand that idiom? Right? Where, where your, your name is picked out of a hat. Right? And it's not like God is, 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 is choosing who to save like that. But from our perspective, it, was, it just fell in our lap. Amen? Amen. We've received this precious faith. It's been granted to us. The same ideas in Philippians 1.29. I'll read it for you guys. For The Apostle Paul writes, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. The believing in Christ has been granted by Christ. It's a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is why I use... The word faith in, this, uh, in, my, in my four points, it's a precious faith. And this is not a faith that you use to, to that you exercise your faith as in uh, um, where, where it says in Hebrews, right? Where you can't do anything with, with, apart from faith and please God, right? This is not a faith also where I think the Apostle Paul talks, everybody has been given a different measure of faith. That's different. This is salvific faith. This is the faith that comes when you put trust and faith in Christ. This is salvation. The Christian life is bound up in this word, faith. And we've obtained it by the grace of God. We've been given. We've been granted. I think the NAS and other version, modern versions don't, don't have this word precious faith like my new King James but the, the, the idea of, of being, it, the idea of this word is, it's equally precious faith. It's equally privileged faith. It's the faith that we have in Christ. And how did we receive this faith, brothers? What does it say? By the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, by, by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That just proves the fact that it's not obtained, it's not received, it's not reached, right, by us, by our merit, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you are trying to earn your way to heaven, you are trying to earn by your own righteousness, by your own merit, what, what, the most loving thing that I can tell you is that that is useless and vain. You think you're a good person. You think by your good works, you're going to be able to achieve this salvation. Let me tell you something. You're a terrible person. You're a wicked, vile sinner, just like all of us. But there is a way of salvation. There is an alien righteousness. There is another righteous, not your own. Because if we are left on our own, in our own works and merit and sin, we only deserve condemnation and judgment. 
eternal hell. There is a way. There is a way, friend, for you to become righteous like Christ, and it is based on the righteousness and merit and work of Jesus Christ. He has lived the life we should have lived. He has died the death that we should have died. He has paid the debt we should have paid. This is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that doesn't stir you up today, and you you call yourself a Christian, if you ponder and you meditate upon the, 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 the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, I don't know what to tell you. That doesn't stir you up. If that doesn't cause you to belt out glories from your soul, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus, friend of sinners, crown of thorns he wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquity, the wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am his forevermore. Beautiful song. This faith, this precious like faith has been granted to us, brethren. So verse 2, he continues, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This faith comes with grace and peace. Multiplied grace and peace. And this is a common, uh, a common um, blessing and introduction to the epistles, but it's still a reality. The grace of God is given to you because of the knowledge you have of Christ. The peace of God, of, of no more enmity with Him, now there's only fellowship with God, comes because of our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'll talk more of this idea of knowledge as is something that is repeated throughout our text. The knowledge of God or the knowledge of Jesus so verse three, we really verse three and four, we really come into the meat, the meat of our text. Verse three, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, again, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. This word again, this, this, by his divine power, he has given to us. It's granted. It's free. It's a free salvation. It's a free giving. He gives us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Think of that for a moment. The divine omnipotence is on your side, brother and sister. Divine power, eternal supply of power is on your side. Uh, Turn to Psalm 18 real quick. Psalm 18, verse 32. What kind of power? How does this look like? Psalm 18, verse 32. It is God who arms me with strength. Your version might say, he girds me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet of, like the feet of deer and sets me on the high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. See the power of God that David has an infinite supply of. This divine power returning to 2 Peter. This divine power has given to us all things. All things. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely, what? Give us all things. All things. And all these things pertain to life and godliness. Life and godliness. Life can mean uh, twofold. The, the, the things to e- achieve eternal life, right? As we just read, through the righteousness of Christ. He supplied all those things necessary for us to obtain eternal life. But also I think it's talking about a earthly life. This life, the Christian life here on earth. He's given you all things that pertain to this life. Not only that, but also of godliness. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The question is, brothers, is what do you lack? What do you need? Ephesians 1 says that in Christ, he has given to us every spiritual blessing. You need joy? He's got divine power to give it to you. He's granted it to you. You need discipline. It's there for you. It's available to you. Do you need love? It's there. Do you need holiness and godliness? It's there, brothers. He's given to us things that pertain to life and godliness. And again, what is the means of this? Through the knowledge of Him. It's through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. By glory and virtue. Again, I'll return to this idea of knowledge later. He called us by glory and virtue. Right? Or we can say for His glory and by His virtue. I think this is talking about Jesus. But it can, the same could be uh, applied to God the Father. God is the one who calls us for his own glory, right? And virtue, the virtue and merit of Christ. I, I think they can be both interchangeable here. He called us by his glory and virtue. Your version might say excellence, right? And so, verse 4 says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I think the ESV says precious and very great promises. I, I, don't, I don't like that translation. This word is, is majestos, or it's, it's great in, in degree of intensity. It's an intense greatness. I love the, N- the NAS says, it's a mag- they're magnificent promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. Again, this word has been granted to us. It's been given to us. It's a gift of God to us. 
This word precious means highly valued, highly esteemed, esteemed worthy. Remember the man who found the, the treasure in the field, right? Or the man who found that pearl of great price. What does he do? He sells everything he has to go buy that field. He sells everything he has to go buy that pearl. That's the idea of here. It's so precious. It's exceedingly great, these promises. Think of the promises Christ has in his word for you. And just list some. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews. Think of, think of the, the, that mind-blowing promise in Revelation 4. To the one who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit next to me on my throne. What? What about the promise of him completing the work that he began in you until the day of the Lord? All of these promises. I wish we had time to, to list out this exhaustive list of the promises of God. But brothers, they are yours. They're yours in Christ. And we would do well to turn those promises into prayers and ask the Lord, Lord, you promised me this. Complete it in my life. They're yours. They're granted to you. And they're exceedingly great and precious. Do you esteem them? And it's through these promises, through these great, exceedingly great, precious promises, that what? That through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. I can't even begin to grasp all that that means. But think of the word partakers is a sharer. The one who has fellowship with, a sharer, or uh, even uh, it can mean partner in the divine nature. It's as if when you come to Christ, God op- the, the triune God opens himself up and you get to be part of him. Not of his deity, of course. Not of his glory, his intrinsic glory, right? That, that only becomes to God, belongs to God. But yes, in his eternality, he's giving us his divine eternal life. Yes, in his holiness. Yes, in his sinlessness one day we will become partakers of. As it says in 1 John, we will be made like him. Think of the promise of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, brothers. Imagine an an Israelite reading Ezekiel 36 in that context where only the presence of God dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And Ezekiel comes saying, yeah, that presence, that presence of God that is so holy that whoever enters into that room will die immediately, that presence is going to dwell in man. That's partaking of his divine nature. We're partakers because we are born of God, the Word of God says. We are children with a new nature, a heavenly nature. We are citizens of heaven, Paul says. It's through these promises that we become partakers of this divine nature. And he ends this section with this truth of, uh, and I think it's an extension of, it's through these precious promises 
promise is that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Right? It's through these promises and partaking of this divine nature that we escape the, the, the corruption of this world. Think of 1 Corinthians 15 where the, the corruptible, the body, will be clothed of what? The incorruptible, right? The same concept is found in 1 Peter. Um, but this, this, this idea of, of it's, it's lust that brings about the corruption of the world, right? It's lust, it's the sinful lust that brings about the corruption of of the world, and we have that list in First John, right? What is the things of the world? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These things corrupt the world, and they corrupt sinful man. And we've escaped that. We've escaped that through this precious promise. We've escaped that through this precious faith, this faith in Christ. We've escaped the corruption, and we've been clothed of the incorruptible. First Peter talks about the incorruptible inheritance. Right? The unchanging inheritance that we have in Christ. And so, how are we doing? Are we, are we stirred up, brothers? I hope we are. I hope we, we're stirred up as Peter is reminding us of the truth of our faith. Let us be stirred to praise and to marvel at this glorious grace, sovereign grace that has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that has granted us these precious and exceedingly great promises. That's really the foundation of, of, of our faith, this truth. My second point, verses 5 through Seven is Peter reminds them to stir them up. Remember, this is the goal of Peter, to stir these Christians up by reminding them the diligence of their faith. Verse five. Also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. This, this, um, these first words, for this very reason, it's, it's just a, a directly related to the first four verses. For look at all that Christ has given us in, in Him. Faith, these, uh, everything that pertains to life and godliness, right? These promises. For this very reason, be diligent. Giving all diligence. Make every effort, in other words. Work to add to your faith. To add to your faith. This is, this is where we see that the Christian life is not just, it doesn't end at justification. It doesn't end just by getting saved. It continues on to a practical way of life where we're continually being sanctified more and more into Christ's likeness. And it comes out practically, tangibly, through our hands and our feet and our mouths and what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears gets very practical. And so we, we see this exhortation to be diligent in our faith. Remember, these 
of verses 1 through 4 is, is the reason, but it's really 3 and 4, right? This, he has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness and these beautiful promises. This word diligence means hasteness or earnestness, right? Effort. And again, it's not to earn justification. He's not telling you to get saved by trying your hardest to get saved. Salvation, as we've already established, is a free gift of God. It's, it's granted to us. It's given to us. But it's talking about sanctification. We're not trying to earn any type of position with God. We have already, we have already received that in Christ. We don't work to earn a position. We work because we have earned that position in Jesus of salvation. So we see this, this paradox, right? This, this God has given to you all these things. God has supplied everything you need for your salvation. He's done it all. He's done all the work. But yet, you work. You make every effort, right? Philippians 2 says the same thing. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here's the exhortation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do. You do it. But it's not over there, right? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. The working is God working in us. The will that you have to please God is God's will in you working in you. That's why I say it's, it's kind of a paradox. God has done it all, but yet we have to make every effort. So, we must make every effort, we giving all diligence to add to your faith virtue or moral excellence, as most versions say. This idea of virtue is the same word in, at the end of verse 3. He called us by glory and virtue. And, and it's really the, the, it's this idea, of in, even in classical Greek, is, is, is used to describe heroic deeds. It's excellent quality of life and work. It's not just a mere attitude, like a mere virtue, like this, this, this untangible attitude that you have, but it, it actually lives out. Think of, if you're a woman, think of Proverbs 31, right? Her diligence and her virtue is seen by what she does and how she cares for, for her family, right? Think of Christ that it says that he grew in wisdom and stature, right? He, he, he was a, a manly man. He was a godly man. And it, it, that doesn't mean that he's just, you know, he would pray in the mornings. He would live it out. It, it, it went all the way to how he spoke and how he walked. This, this is the idea of virtue, in other words, be a glory for King Jesus. Doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you're doing, be a virtuous Christian. This could include even being skillful and competent, being healthy, physically healthy and fit. It's all in this, this idea of virtue. Be a virtuous man or woman. A virtuous Christian. Now, I want to keep going, but there's much more we can say. 
So we add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now this word knowledge is repeated over and over in our text. But just think of that. The Christian life is a life established on knowledge. John 17, 3, what is it? This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom we have sent. Remember, that's why I had Aaron read Judges, right? What does it say? Uh, let, let me turn there real quick. I'll, I'll read it for you. In Judges chapter 2, when Joshua dies, right? And then it says, when all that generation, the generation of Joshua passed away and had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And what was the outcome of that? The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot, and, and their parents did not pass down the knowledge of God. And so they started worshiping false gods, and the anger of the Lord was hot against them, it says in verse 14. The, the Christian life is, is marked by knowledge. We, we are to grow in knowledge constantly so that we do not forget and become like Israel. It's not just the knowledge that of saving faith, but it's the continual knowledge. We must be continually growing in knowledge. Wonderful way you can do that is joining a community group. Amen? Being dedicated to a community group where you're going through the scriptures, you get a little more in depth, and you're growing in knowledge together, and you're built up. I was reading Acts this week, and just... Marvel that the apostles, these fishermen, it even says there that the Pharisees were marveled for weren't these Galileans, weren't these untrained men? And here we have Peter and John just eloquently, you know, as Jesus had opened their mind to understand the scriptures, right? And they're applying the Old Testament to there. And this day, this has been fulfilled. And, and you said in your word, and, and, and I was just like, wow, transformation of what the word of God can do. Do you know God's word? Do you know most of, the, of God's word? Do you read God's word? Do you meditate on God's word? Knowledge. We must grow in knowledge. We add to our faith knowledge. Let's keep going. Uh, we, we add to knowledge self-control. This idea of mastery, self-mastery. Right? As Paul said, I beat my body into submission. The self-control. Look at what Proverbs 25, 28 says. Like a city whose walls are broken down, so a man who has no self-control over his own spirit. The thing that I see today, even amongst uh, young men, is their, their control over their emotions, their anger. And this, this idea of venting, right? Proverbs 29, 10. A fool vents out all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. The ability to hold back emotion, anger, these feelings. It takes self-control. What about controlling our mouths, brother? Both of what comes out of them and what goes into them. Amen? Are you a person who, who just dominates conversations and doesn't let anybody else get a word in? You lack self-control. 
Or are you quick to listen and slow to speak? What about more practical things like screen time, right? Sometimes it's the hardest thing to just stop doing this, right? And you know, like, I should get off of this, you know, but it's, right? But self-control, laziness and idleness, right? All of, this, all of these qualities really require of a level of self-awareness. Examine yourself. How, how, are you, how are you measuring up to these qualities? Let us be diligent in adding self-control to our faith. What else? To self-control, perseverance. This idea of long-suffering under trial and temptation. Not giving in to sin. Not growing weary and doing what's good. Persevere. Getting back up when you do fall. Repenting immediately when you sin. That's a way of persevering. I need to hurry up here. But godliness, that's what we add to perseverance, godliness. Piety, purity. This is, godliness is living with reverence toward God. Right? Ligonier Ministries, right before the face of God, Coromdale. Right? This is not a floaty, mystical, invisible godliness. Right? No, it's a practical and visible one. Your godliness shows up on how you, you speak, what kind of jokes you, you say and, and laugh at. Your godliness comes out in how you treat others and your behavior. It comes out on how you love your wife. It comes out on how you respect your husband, how you obey your parents' children. It even comes out in your dress. Being modest in your apparel. Something that has been a hot topic these past few months in the Christian realm. The Bible gives us guidelines on what constitutes nakedness. We should take a, be aware of that. Being modest in our clothing. It's what you see. What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of music are you hearing? All this pertains to godliness. To godliness, we add brotherly affection, brotherly love. I don't know why most versions said brotherly kindness. Or maybe I'll ask Kurt or Steve. But it's Philadelphia. It's the love of the brethren. Right? It's affection. Right? And here, here's an immediate practical application for this. Stay after church for a little bit. Talk to me. Talk to each other. I want to get to know you. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ, if you have this same precious faith. Look what Matthew Henry says here. This tender affection must be to all fellow Christians who are children of the same father. They're servants of the same master. They're members of the same family. They're travelers to the same heavenly country. And they're heirs of the same inheritance. And we see talking about anybody in particular, but I've been in churches where you go, you sit down, and right after the benediction, you just spring out of there. No. Stay. Brotherly love requires that you stick around to get to know. It requires vulnerability. It requires the the possibility that you might get hurt. You might get betrayed. You might get talked about. But it's a a risk that that you're willing to take because you have to add to your faith brotherly kindness and affection. More practical ways to just pray for someone. Not just say, I'll pray for you, but let's pray right now. 
Let's pray right now. Give me your hand. Let's pray right now. Sharing that burden immediately with somebody. Inviting someone over for dinner. Encouraging someone, right? Encouraging, you know, uh, I see Robert, you know, and I'm just like, brother, thank you for all that you do, you know? Probably the fir- some of the, one of the first men here and one of the last ones to leave. You know, it's just encouraging. I've been encouraged here in this church and it feels really good. I feel the love. I feel the affection. Right? Building relationships. It also means forgiveness. Right? You can't have brotherly love without forgiving one another. I've been in churches where you, can't, you, have, you have to keep the two sisters separate, right? The one, one sits over there and the other one sits over here and don't let them come across each other. Away with that. Requires harmony, requires forgiveness, reconciliation. Requires FaceTime again, right? So it's, there's no excuse to not have brotherly love. And lastly, love. We, we see... Uh, the end of this list is love. And, and as it says in Colossians, right, it, the love is the bond of what, brother? Perfection, remember? Bond, bond is the bond of perfection. It unites everything. You can't do any of these things if you don't have love for God and love for his people. This is agape love. We correct, we teach, we preach, we say the truth, what? In love. And so... Let us work out a diligent faith, brothers. This, this should stir us to, to strive, knowing that, that, that God has supplied all these things for us already. All we have to do is walk in them. They're there. Just walk in them. And so, lastly, my two points, and I'm just going to fly through these because I'm running out of time. Number three is the fruitfulness of faith. Peter reminds them of the fruitfulness of their faith. For Verse eight, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of abounding, it's, it's, it's never ceasing to grow. It's just increasing and increasing. And I love how he puts it in the negative. You'll never be barren or unfruitful, Right? You won't be barren and you won't not produce fruit. <laughs> in other words, in the positive, you will be very useful and you produce lots of fruit. You see, in John 15, God hates barrenness. God hates unfruitfulness so much that he cuts off the branch that doesn't produce fruit and he throws it where? In the fire. In the Old Testament, barrenness is seen as a curse from God, whether in the field or even in the womb. He prunes. Remember, he curses the fig tree, right, in Mark? Right, because it appeared to have fruit, but it didn't. So he curses the fig tree, and then the fig tree withers. God hates unfruitfulness. But if these things abound, brothers, you will be fruitful. You will be productive. You will be useful. And again, this idea, this will happen in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just reminding us of those four four verses. It's in the knowledge of, that he has given us, in that faith that he has given us. Verse 9, For he who lacks these things are short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. This idea of short-sighted. You only see what's in front of you. So much that you forget the glorious background of the forgiveness of your old past sins. Lots of Christians like that. 
They forget. They have forgotten. This is like in Judges. You've forgotten what God has forgiven you of. So these, these Christians that are, are, are in this life, have this faith, this weak faith, short-sighted faith, continue stumbling into the same sin. Continue stumbling. Don't, we don't, we don't want to be like that. Right? And so... Um, That's the fruitfulness of their faith. And lastly, he reminds them of the outcome of their faith. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This idea of making your call and election sure is this idea of assurance. You ever struggle with assurance? This idea of, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I would die right now that I would go to heaven. This is how you can have assurance, brothers. You can, ha- you can make your calling and election sure by doing these things, by realizing these truths in verses 1 through 4, and by living them out if, by these qualities in verses 5 through 7, and bearing the fruit in verses 8 and 9. It's glorious. The exhortation, again, is be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure. I remember when I was pretty new to the Christian faith, something I would wonder is, what does God want me to do? What's the will of God for my life? What does he want me to do? Does he want me to be a missionary, a pastor? Then I read 2 Peter 1, right? I got a lot of work to do already. These qualities growing in them, not just having them, abounding in them. We have work to do. And lastly, this promise to enter into the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord, this abundant entrance. I love this word, for so an entrance will be supplied. Same word in verse 5, supply to your faith, virtue marks. It's like this reward. You will supply your faith, be diligent, then the Lord will supply you with an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful reality. And so, 2 Peter, verses 1-11, through 11, the stirring of the soul, the stirring of the faith. Brothers, are we stirred? Are we stirred to marvel? I love that song from Matt Bradman, May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. You marveled at the grace of God in your life. And are you empowered to go and live that out in your particular life? I hope you are. And so with that, um, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is so rich. It's so, Father, it's like drinking from a fire hose sometimes, God. These truths, Lord, are so glorious, God. And I pray you would stir up our hearts in faith. We pray for those that are short-sighted. We pray for those that continue to stumble, Lord. Continue to be discouraged, to continue to lack assurance, Father. Would you help them? And Father, I pray for the one that does not know you. He is only blind. He can't even, he's not even short-sighted. He's just blind and dead in his sin. Would you awaken him or her? Would they hear your voice and open their eyes to see the glory of King Jesus? 
Would you help us, Lord, to abound in these qualities, abound in fruit, so much fruit, Lord, that just, it's just falling off the branches, God. We want to be useful. We want to be fruitful. And we just thank you, God, for these truths. Um, may you bless us as we sing now how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.